is at work. Satan is at work to deceive. Satan is at work to tempt. Satan is at work to destroy. Now, we won't be focusing on Satan for the majority of this message. We will be focusing on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who this text is about. But I just want to make it clear, Satan doesn't just want to destroy the testimony of you, the individual believer. No, he wants to destroy more than just the testimony of you, but the testimony of you all, that is collectively the local church. In this age, this, the church, the local church is the primary unit of evangelism. It is the primary unit of ministry. It is the primary unit of gospel proclamation. And Satan wants to destroy the testimony of the church. He wants to neutralize the church's effectiveness. He wants to diminish the church's light to the world. So, again, Satan is at work and one of the ways that he's at work that we can see happening all around us throughout entire denominations down to local churches is the perversion of doctrine of the church. I mean, you, you can't have an effective testimony for the authentic gospel if you aren't upholding and proclaiming the authentic gospel. But let's be clear. Having sound doctrine does not make a church invincible. Being right about what you believe does not make a church bulletproof. Because another way that Satan loves to work is to claw at the unity of a church. Faction, bickering, divisiveness, bitterness, and disunity can creep in and damage churches. Even churches that have a perfect doctrinal statement, even churches that believe all of the right things up here. Satan wants a fractured church because a fractured church has little ability to effectively proclaim Christ and to be a light to a lost world. So for us as a local church, this is so, so important. In order for us to be a light to Madison and beyond, we must be unified. We, once again, we, we can believe all the right things we can know all the right things. We can be right in here and we can have a great order of service and we can busy ourselves with doing all the pageantry that is doing church. But if we are not in harmony with one another, then we have utterly failed. So, let's get into the good news. Before we do, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for the, the rain that you've brought us that has refreshed the land, and we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning. And on this morning, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would speak in and through me and to each and every one of us, and that all of us would commit ourselves to being not just hearers, but doers of your Holy Bible. And we appreciate the time that we have here that you've given us, and we give it all to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Amen. So starting in verse 1, we'll read through verse 4, it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We'll pause there. Now, 
Last week, we closed chapter 1 with a powerful exhortation from the Apostle Paul. What he said there was, and this should be a challenge to every single person at every single stage of your spiritual maturity, of every single stage of your walk with Christ, that exhortation was, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, what he's saying is, make sure you are living out that very message that you proclaim, that very message that you say transformed you and brought you out of darkness into light, that supernatural message of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and salvation. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, part of what we read about that is, is standing firm. The other part is striving side by side. That's not always easy. See, spiritual unity doesn't just come from us all thinking the same thing up here. So now Paul is, is speaking in the rhetorical, and what he's saying is, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, now notice, all of those things sound like what we receive in our personal relationship with Christ. So these are rhetorical. He's saying, of course you have encouragement if you have a relationship with Christ. You have the most encouragement you could possibly find. You've been ransomed out of darkness into light, and you belong as an adopted child of the creator of the universe. Of course that's encouraging. It's, it's what gives us purpose. It's what gives us everlasting life and eternity. Furthermore, of course, there's comfort in God's love. That, in fact, is the very thing that redeems us and sustains us. Of course, if we have a relationship with Christ, then we partake in the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And again, of course, if we have a relationship with Christ, then we are recipients of affection and sympathy that this world could never know except by God. So, if you have a personal relationship with Christ, you have received these things, you know these things, and if you have received those things and know these things, you are responsible to live them out. And live them out in the following ways. What does it say here? Verse 2, be of the same mind. Be of the same mind means strive for a common understanding and agreement. What it's saying is, if you are at odds with someone, work to settle it as soon as possible. Don't let it fester. Pursue understanding. Be someone who chases after reconciliation. But it also says, have the same love. And look, there, there's no wiggle room here. We always like to look for the edges or the gray areas of the wiggle room here. Have the same love. I mean, we're, we're not allowed to just love some or even just love most, or love those who are lovable or easy for us to love, or even just love those who love us back. We're not allowed to love just some of the time or even most of the time. We are to have the same love. A mutual love should be found here. It also says, be in full accord, and, and more literally, this is translated as united in spirit. I think that's how some of your translations read, be united in spirit. And what this means is to, to have harmony. What it's saying is that there is no room in the Christian heart for grudges, for hatred, for envy, or jealousy, or bitterness. So the Apostle Paul goes on 
addressing the church in Philippi, saying, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, pride is at the core of every conflict. It doesn't matter what the conflict may be about, what you say it's about, what you're disputing or what you're arguing, you dig beneath the surface and get to the root of it and what you will find is pride. Every faction, every disunity can at some level be traced to people thinking more highly of themselves than they ought and thinking of themselves more significant than others. Understand, it's human nature to look out for number one because it's human nature to see ourselves as number one. But in your new nature... Consider others more significant than yourselves. Well, practically, what that looks like is the very next thing that's stated here, which is looking to the interests of others instead of just your own. Now, I'm glad to see a lot of nodding heads. I'm glad to see a lot of agreement. I'm glad to see a lot of smiles. All those things, they sound wonderful. They sound great. They sound so simple. And it is simple, isn't it? It's so straightforward and easy to understand. It is simple. But it ain't easy. It ain't easy. After all, we're not called to embody these characteristics or these commands in a vacuum or in isolation. We have to do this in real life. We have to do this toward other sinful, imperfect people. We have to live in harmony with people who are are bound to frustrate us, who are bound to let us down, and people who are guaranteed to get on our nerves. Yet, what comes next is one of the most just smack you right between the eyes passages in all scripture because Paul is going to up the ante. If you thought that was challenging and not easy enough, he's about to up the ante and and he told us to be of one mind and now he's going to give us who that one mind is. He's going to set the bar so incredibly high but so profound. So before we go on into verse 5, I I, I want us all to do something, okay? This, This may sound like a strange exercise, but just where you're sitting, think of a fellow believer, think, think of someone who is getting on your nerves lately. You might say, wait, what? This doesn't sound like a healthy activity for a Sunday morning. But if you have someone in your mind who has been vexing you, who has been getting on your nerves, if you harbor any sort of resentment or, or any conflict towards someone, whether they annoy you, whether they've hurt you, whether you disagree with them, uh, maybe you have a grudge. Maybe you think you have the right to have that grudge because of what they've said or done and how it's affected you. Or maybe someone has just been a a drain on you lately. You feel like you've given them more than they've given back and it's frustrated you. Whatever it may be, if they're here, look around the room at whoever that may be and stare right at them. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Wait, wait, why is everyone staring at me right now? (laughs) No. Just recall to your mind whoever it is that that you're struggling to have unity with. And while you do that, let's continue and see what the word says. Verse 5 continues on. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. 
So Paul says, have this mind, which is also translated as, as this attitude, or we can think of it as this mode, this setting among you. And we are to have this mind, again, not in a vacuum, but among yourselves is what it says. And Now, among yourselves means not so much that each of you individually must manifest this in your life, although it absolutely starts there. What Paul means by have this mind among yourselves is that the church collectively, all of us in community must be embodying this. Another way to see it is, is simply, if an outsider were to look in on this church body, or, or far, far better than that, when Christ looks upon a local church, is this the mind and the attitude and the spirit that he would find? So when the Lord examines our fellowship and our worship and our attitude each of us has toward another, is this what he would find? And that example is the incarnate Christ himself, who, as it reads, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to, to be grasped. Jesus always was, always is, always will be, eternally always existing as God. Jesus is God before the creation of the universe. He has no beginning or end. He is God. And when it says in the form of God, it just means that he, the nature of God in every way is in Christ. That means outwardly and inwardly, the reality is his complete deity for all of eternity. Yet, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now understand, G Jesus did not ever relinquish or forfeit his divinity or his place in the triune Godhead whatsoever at any point. But this word for equality is actually in the plural in the original Greek. What it's saying is Jesus did not count his equalities with God a thing to be grasped, meaning the marvelous riches of heaven that he enjoyed for all of eternity, the glorious worship of countless angels, that perfect paradise and unmitigated glory. He owns all these things. He deserves all these things, yet he did not consider these things things to be grasped, meaning to, to be clung onto like a, a prize or a privilege, to be held onto at all costs. Instead, what does it say? Verse 7, it says, but emptied himself. Now let's be clear, what exactly did he empty himself of? Well, he did not empty himself of any deity, of any perfection or any divine nature or of any of his rights to be worshipped and to be obeyed and to be followed. What the New King James Version says is that he made himself of no reputation. He completely divested himself of every advantage and every privilege of heaven in order to humble himself. The one who created everything and owned everything forsook everything. Jesus emptied himself of divine comfort. He emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes. And while he did not cease to be omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent, he did limit the exercise of those qualities but he emptied himself of, of perfect face-to-face -face fellowship with the triunity, and he submitted himself fully to the will of the Father and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So, as we've already covered, let's just state again, Jesus, 
eternally was so incomprehensibly high. He began here, but he emptied himself where? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus forsook the privileges of kingship by taking the form of a slave. He intrinsically has the form of God, but he takes on the form of a bondservant. And just as fully and innately as he exists as God, at that point, when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, he now exists in the form of a servant. Jesus' entire life on earth would be that of a servant. And as he said in Matthew 20, 28, the, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said in Luke chapter 22, verse 27, he said, Who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now this here, with all the glitz and the glamour that, that we celebrate in our Western culture during Christmas, with all the lights and all the Black Friday sales and all of the songs and movies and everything like that that just gets so distracting, this is truly what was made known to the world that night in Bethlehem. But the first outward glimpse, the first breaths in human flesh, the first cries as an infant, the first time his, his young mother Mary and his adoptive father Joseph would ever lay eyes upon him would be in a cave used as a stable. Not in some palace fit for a king, much less something worthy of the God and creator of the universe. On that night, they found no accommodations among relatives or in the city, and this magnificent, most glorious moment of the Savior breathing air for the first time happened in a place not even fitting for the lowest of society, let alone, again, for the king of creation. But on that night in Bethlehem, he would be laid in a stone-feeding trough to sleep beneath the stars that he created. So even that thought is just staggering. Even the thought of our transcendent God infusing himself into our dimension, into our timeline, in, into our material world by taking on a, a body just like ours and being born just like we are and seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling just like we do. So in those first moments in Bethlehem, understand from, from what Jesus deserves and where he came from, He's already humbled himself to a degree that, that were words simply to escape me. But we know there's so much more to the story. As verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, again, Jesus would have already completed the greatest display of humility that eternity had ever known if he would have stooped from heaven and taken on the form of an emperor and lived in a life of luxury and a palace being served because even the richest existence as a human in our fallen world would still be an immeasurably degraded existence compared to Christ's glory in eternity. 
but instead he's born in inhumane, degrading conditions. He lives as a servant. And not only does he take on human form, it says in verse 8 he, he's found in human form. Meaning that everyone around him saw him as just a human. Now understand, mo most people who observe Jesus, even those who witnessed his miracles and his perfect life, most of them ultimately rejected him as not being the Son of God, but as simply being a mere man. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. As Isaiah prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ in Isaiah 53, he said, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So his existence on this earth was humbling relative to, to other humans of the time. He was of a humble profession, in a humble town, in a humble time, in a humble territory under the control of the Roman Empire. Yet the text continues and goes even further in verse 8. It says he humbles himself even further, except here he humbles himself by becoming obedient to death. I mean, e even that word here, being obedient to death, just demonstrates that he is divine. You know, none of us will be obedient to death. It, it's just something that's going to happen to us, right? It's not a choice that we submit ourselves to and say, okay, I'm ready. No, it's a consequence that all of us have to face. But God the Son, he was obedient to death. Something that he took on his own accord, something he would have never otherwise experienced. He was in perfect submission to the eternal redemptive plan, even to death. But that's not all. It goes even further than that. Even death on a cross. It's been said that no one dies with, with dignity. But understand the cross is truly the least dignified way to die ever invented. It's public. The victim of crucifixion is stripped naked. They're beaten and scourged with lashes that would leave even bones exposed. They would be mocked. They would be raised up for all to see with the charges for which they are dying prominently displayed above them. Crucifixion is truly the most brutal, excruciating, inhumane, and torturous of executions ever devised. But even that's not all. It's what was happening on that cross that was in fact far more oppressive and degrading than anything that Rome could ever invent or inflict upon a human body because it was in that moment that he bore the full weight and shame of all of our sins. The triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had only known perfect, harmonious unity for all of eternity, but it was in this moment for the first time that God the Father turned his face away from God the Son as God the Son bore the payment for those sins perfectly. And this was the plan all along to redeem us. He did that for you. He did that for me. There's no limit to what God would do to display his infinite and glorious love. 
As Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, the lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops, and when he reaches our level and becomes a man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. Now remember that that strange little exercise I asked us all to do a little while back earlier on. Whatever that, that beef that you had against a brother or a sister seems pretty silly now, huh? If God himself can humble himself to such a staggering degree to serve and to save those of us who strayed from him, who are we to insist on our own way? Who are we to hold a grudge? Who are we to harbor anything against a brother or sister? If someone has sinned against you, Matthew 18 tells it simply. Approach them one-on-one and tell them their fault in love. If it's a matter of opinion, find a way to get over it. Either way, if you are at odds with a brother or sister today, delay no further. Reconcile immediately. After all, it's because we were at odds with our holy creator that Jesus humbled himself and endured such great agony to reconcile us to God. But as we know, the story of our humbled king doesn't end there. Verses 9 through 11 read, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. During his life on earth, as I said earlier, Jesus proclaimed who he is to many people and he was rejected by the vast majority of them. He was despised and rejected by men, a a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, as the prophet Isaiah said. But everyone, everyone will acknowledge who he is. He is the name above every name. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is king. Amen? The, the message of the incarnation, despite, you know, when we, when we celebrate the nativity in December, it seems to be the opposite of this. It seems to be a message of opulence and of excess and commercialism. But the message of the incarnation, of God taking on human flesh, is one of profound, unparalleled meekness, of humility, of sacrifice, of love but ultimately a message of triumph. God the Son transformed himself to our likeness so that we could be transformed into his likeness. Does his humility, selflessness, and love live through you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son to walk among us, to take on the form of a servant, to to bear our sins upon the cross and to die in our place. Lord, I pray if there are any here who have not accepted that free gift of grace, that today might be the day of their salvation where they would acknowledge you as Savior and Lord and accept that you did that for them. Lord, I pray for all of us, though, that, that 
that profound message would be one that is just lived out in our lives and everything that we do, that as we acknowledge with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and we recognize what you've done for us that is beyond words, that is beyond measure, that, Lord, people would see that, that we would be living, talking, breathing, doing embodiments of that all-transforming, powerful message, something that is real as real can be, but also real and transformative in us. And we give you all the glory because all the glory is due to you, the name above every names, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Amen.